0: Hello, and welcome to Ed Infinitum, the podcast that makes school the subject of study. I'm your host, David Nuremberg. This is Season 3, Episode 7 Oh, You Beautiful Doll. This episode does have something of a long lead in, and I ask your patience as there really is somewhere I'm going with this. All right, here goes. It's a maxim in education that we learn from models. There's an incredible value in seeing examples of something done well in order to help us conceptualize what quality work looks like. No matter how systematically or in how much detail I describe what I expect from my students, there is no substitute for showing, and not just telling them, what they're aiming for. It is in this vein that I acknowledge the incredible influence that Isaac Meyer's History of Japan podcast has had on me as a podcaster. For years I toyed periodically with the idea of doing an education podcast, but didn't have a clear idea of how I'd want it to look and feel, or rather, sound and feel. So much of how I construct ad infinitum, from the structure of the episodes to the cadence of my speech and my attempts at the injection of quirky humor between otherwise formally presented material, comes from Isaac's model. What drew me to Isaac's podcast, and what has kept me there through over 300 episodes, is that I'm sort of obsessed with all things Japanese and I see Isaac as a fellow nerdy Jewish guy who likes sci-fi and shares my Japan obsession. I developed this Japan obsession by accident, really. Early in my teaching career, I was tapped to be a chaperone on a school trip to Japan, and I wound up drinking the Kool-Aid, or perhaps the sake, with a vengeance. At this point, I've coordinated that Japanese exchange program for going on 15 years now, which routinely brings my American high school students to their sister school in Hokkaido, Japan's northernmost major island, along with welcoming a yearly delegation from our Japanese sister school to our community. By now I've made over 20 trips to the Japanese islands, both with and without students. I've even brought my own young children. I've learned a fair amount of the language, even if my pronunciation remains atrocious, made good real friends in our Japanese sister city, And if you'd asked me as a first-year teacher, I just never could have imagined how much of a place in my life Japan would grow to hold. Life is seldom so neat as to provide singular road to Damascus moments. I think I must have had several on my way to this long romance with Japan. But if I had to pick one moment that was the very least seminal in that process, it would be the first time I visited the clock tower in downtown Sapporo, Hokkaido's capital city. For one, the clock tower is a testimonial to the close relationship at the time between the US and Japan. It was designed by an architect from my home state of Massachusetts who became very famous and influential during the late 19th century throughout Hokkaido. But within this symbol of cross-cultural friendship sits what is perhaps an even stronger symbol of that friendship. A small doll in a glass case, set off aside in a room that you can very easily miss. This object is what I always bring my students to see when they visit and no matter how many times I explain its history to them, it still brings forth a couple of tears from me, and even from them, which is no mean feat when you're dealing with high schoolers. Now, if you're wondering what any of this has to do with the world of education, besides the fact that I've mentioned high school a few times, don't worry. The story of this doll, and others like it, is very much a story about schools, school children, and school teachers. It does, however, require some background and context in Japanese history and particularly the history of relations between Japan and the United States. Isaac Meyer, if you're listening, I hope I'm getting all of this right, or at least right enough. But here we go. In the 17th century, Japan went from a period of fragmentation and ceaseless internal wars, the Sengoku period, to a unified nation under the forceful and well-organized, if somewhat draconian at times, rule of the shogun or warlord Tokugawa Yesu and eventually his descendants. Among Tokugawa's many mechanisms of social control and cohesion was a policy of isolationism. Travel outside Japan was extremely discouraged, if not outright forbidden. And contact with foreign powers, especially from Europe, was extremely limited. Almost exclusively, really, to a small island near Nagasaki. It wasn't as if Japan was totally unaware of the West or vice versa, but those interactions were highly limited and constrained by design for many reasons, not the least of which was fear not entirely unfounded when you look at the history of Western imperialism, that Western culture was a polluting and corrupting force, whose effect the shogun's government needed to minimize. But shutting a door doesn't mean that someone else can't break it down, and that was basically what the United States did, when in 1853, U.S. Navy Commodore Matthew Perry of the so-called Black Fleet sailed into Tokyo Harbor, and showing off their fancy technology and very big guns successfully pressured Japan into some rather unequal trading agreements with America. Not exactly the most auspicious beginning to American and Japanese friendship. As you can imagine, this did not sit well with many in the Japanese power structure, and conflicts arose between those who wanted to expel the Westerners and or rebel against the government that capitulated to them, and others who looked at all that fancy technology and big guns and said, hmm. The West got really strong when we weren't looking. We should learn from them, become like them, but on our terms, because that's the only way we're going to avoid going the way of so many other cultures that fought to maintain tradition and basically got steamrolled by colonizers. In other words, become enough like the West to be strong enough not to be easy pickings, to interact with them as a peer on their own terms, but also hold on to what makes us essentially and especially Japanese. In fact, they felt you couldn't do the latter without the former. And, right or wrong, that's the side that won out in the end. The Japanese government of the late 19th and early 20th century routinely invited experts from Western countries, especially the United States, in the fields of agriculture, medicine, engineering, warfare, you name it, and paid them very handsomely for their advice in helping to shepherd this grand transformation. The world of the samurai thus faded into a world of suits and ties, Now, one of the dirty secrets, or not really so secret to most of the world, as to how Europe and America got so gosh darn rich and powerful was from colonizing and plundering other lands, from the British in India to the French in Southeast Asia, to the mass importation of of slave labor in the United States. Well, Japan sure as heck noticed that reality, and in their quest to westernize, very much pursued the task of empire-building themselves, conquering and annexing large parts of China, Korea, Taiwan, and elsewhere the military grew ever more powerful and eventually suborned the civilian government to its influence. As the reach of Japan's empire started to butt up against the reach of Western empires, war began to loom on the horizon. And we all know what happened on December 7th, 1941, that day that would live in infamy. But right up until that moment, there were those in both the United States and in Japan that had formed strong bonds of friendship during those decades of intense cooperation, and as it turned out, even during the worst days of the Pacific War, some of that remained. And that's where the connection to schools comes in. All right, whew, now that we're through the background info, I'll just pause to say in Japanese, Sort of a self-congratulations for a job well done, although literally it means something like, boy, I'm tired. But I'm getting my second wind here as we introduce a man named Sidney Gulick. Gulick, an American citizen, was born in the Marshall Islands, the son of Luther Halsey Gulick. He generally went just by Halsey, a missionary who was doing work there. From all accounts, Halsey was not your typical missionary. Growing up in Hawaii, he and his two brothers were involved in protesting the near-slavery that American corporations had imposed upon the sugarcane plantations there. Halsey became editor of two different Hawaiian-language newspapers, which he used to speak out against the destruction of Native Hawaiian culture so much so that the government issued a warrant for his arrest after he wrote an editorial calling certain politicians, quote, parasites. Since the First Amendment still applied in the occupied Hawaiian territories, at least to white folks, he never actually served jail time. In another departure from what you might expect from a family of religious Christian missionaries, one of Gulick's brothers actually wound up working with Charles Darwin on his theory of evolution. This was the family that Sidney Gulick was born into. The family had since moved to Asia in no small part out of concern for their safety in Hawaii, and it wasn't long before Sydney's older brother, and then Sidney himself, ended up in Japan. To be certain, Sydney did spend many years of his young life in the mainland United States, enough to earn degrees from Dartmouth, Yale, and Oberlin, so he was no intellectual slouch, and to have a ministry in Brooklyn before, at the age of 28, he ended up working for the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions in Japan a position he would remain in for the next 25 years. Gulick became fluent in Japanese, enough to actually write some Japanese language books, as well as to have regular teaching gigs in English, science, and religion at schools and universities throughout Japan. He eventually joined the faculty of not one but two prominent Japanese universities, Doshisha University in Kyoto and Kyoto Imperial University. After eventually returning to the United States in 1913, Gulick was horrified at the rising tide of anti-Asian racism in the western part of the country, particularly in a new law in California that prohibited Chinese and Japanese Americans from owning farmland. Gulick engaged in peace activism during the First World War and advocated for the United States' entry into the world court. It was when the U.S. went ahead and passed by overwhelming bipartisan majority the Immigration Act of 1924 that Gulick decided he needed to change tactics. The Immigration Act, also known as the Johnson-Reed Act, the Asian Exclusion Act, and the National Origins Act, effectively banned all immigration from Asia. This is also the act, incidentally, that created the U.S. Customs and Border Patrol. Dismayed at how his country seemed to be entering an isolationist phase, throwing up barriers to cross-cultural communication, Gulick developed a plan. Like a great many before and since, Gulick decided that public education was the place to influence the minds of children as a means of shaping the future for the better. He helped form the Committee on World Friendship Among Children, whose most famous and successful project was the US-Japanese Friendship Doll Exchange. The idea behind this project was essentially that if people were no longer able to cross borders and make friends with one another, then dolls would do it for them. Even given all of the cultural differences between the United States and Japan, children's love of dolls was a universal American kids of all walks of life played with dolls, and so did Japanese kids. In fact, Gulick was familiar with the Japanese cultural festival called Hinamatsuri, a celebration of dolls and girls, reputedly begun in the 1600s by an emperor's daughter and made an official holiday by the Empress Meisho several decades later. Gulick's plan was to organize an ambassadorial delegation of dolls, dolls made and dressed like American children, to travel to Japan in time for Hinamatsuri in 1927. The dolls were meant to be more than just playthings. They were meant to be educational tools, little porcelain cultural ambassadors that would arrive packed with information about the cultural practices of American boys and girls. And by ambassadors, I'm not using that term metaphorically. The dolls actually came with detailed replica passports and other mock diplomatic paperwork that openly declared their mission of cultural education and exchange. Now, one of the many things that has always fascinated me as a traveler in Japan is the thoroughness of most Japanese organizations' bureaucracy. Our Japanese sister city is a small town of about 30,000, yet its town office is staffed with a veritable army of political and clerical staff, organized in complex hierarchies. There is an entire branch of the town office dedicated solely to our sister city and sister school relationships, and staffed by at least three levels of section chiefs, a dedicated coordinator of international affairs, and various other functionaries. It's kind of amazing, because on our end of the exchange, all we have is a dozen parent and teacher volunteers getting by on in-kind donations and bake sale fundraising. It's kind of embarrassing. Kulik was clearly influenced by the Japanese model, because the Committee on World of Friendship Among Children set up a special department called the Doll Travel Bureau under the directorship of someone named Rosalie Ashton, The Doll Travel Bureau had a monumental task ahead of it. It wasn't as if Gulick or the committee had a ready supply of dolls, nor was this the era where dolls were mass-produced in anything like the quantities we have today, where you can just walk into a store or, well, during the pandemic, click on Amazon, and buy a bunch at relatively affordable prices. So Mrs. Ashton, along with a Miss Mary Moffat, my source for these names is the report that the World Committee on Friendship Among Children wrote about the project. And perhaps assuming their readership already knew of these people, they didn't bother to give any biographical information about them, or really anything at all other than their role in the project. But anyway, these two women apparently organized a cadre of other young women to contact and correspond with doll manufacturers, while at the same time, to ensure there would be schools willing to help take these dolls and engage their students in the exchange project. Each doll had a mechanism that let it say, "mama." and cost around $3, which in late 1920s money works out to about $40 or $50 in contemporary money. So these dolls were not exactly cheap. If this project was going to work, it would need some crowdsourced funding. And this is almost a century before the advent of GoFundMe. The money for these dolls came from fundraisers and children's saved allowances from all over the nation. How did they pull that off? The Doll Bureau called upon the resources of the Federal Council of the Churches of Christ in America to help spread this message far and wide and encourage and coordinate the fundraising. The Federal Council of Churches of Christ in America was a fairly left-leaning network, with representation from dozens of branches of Christianity. Headquartered in Washington, D.C., and most famous for its tireless organizing efforts in favor of prohibition and temperance. But in this case, they used their extensive network to advertise Gulick's doll project not only throughout the hundreds of churches and Sunday schools that comprise their membership, but into public schools as well. On top of that, the Doll Bureau did outreach according to their records through the Girl Scouts, the Campfire Girls, the YWCA Girl Reserves, Young People's Societies, Parent Teacher Associations, and Women's Clubs. Basically, in an era long before the internet, the Doll Bureau managed nevertheless to get their idea to go viral. A key part of this information blitz was a leaflet the Doll Bureau designed, bearing a photograph of a little American girl playing at dolls with a little Japanese girl. It was, in the committee's words, quote, a photograph that told the story at a glance, unquote. Now, in case you're wondering, the little American girl in the photo was white, because, of course, then, as now, progressive does not always mean racially inclusive. And this is a subject we'll pick up on a little bit later in the episode as well. The leaflet gave detailed instructions for the project, with headings like Who shall send dolls? The kind of dolls wanted. What girls can do? What boys can do? What teachers and mothers can do? It even gave advice for how to conduct a farewell party for the doll before it would be sent off on its mission to Japan. Now I have also yet to secure a copy of this leaflet, so I don't know precisely how long it was, but from these descriptions it seems to stretch my definition of leaflet and start to approach book. There are paragraphs upon paragraphs describing how to properly stamp and visa the doll's passport, how to manage its boat and train tickets, this was basically a curriculum unit in customs and immigration policy for elementary schoolers, but the Committee on World Friendship Among Children calls it a leaflet, so that's the terminology I'm going to stick with. The story of the Doll Exchange program was eventually picked up by Everyland, a popular girls' magazine at the time, which spread the program's reach from hundreds of school children to tens of thousands. One church journal really went all in on the doll project by publishing a fiction essay written from the perspective of a traveling doll taking part in the program, which I'll quote from here. The great hold of the ship was a dark place. Usually it was still also, except for the noises of the straining ship, the creaking of timbers, and the slap slap of the water rushing past outside. But on this trip, there was a queer, whispering, bustling sound to be heard all the time. For, contrary to the usual method, the holds of the ship was filled with passengers. If you listened, you could hear them talking back and forth. I come from Maine, whispered a little laughy voice. Who else here is from Maine? I am, and I, called thousands of little bell-like voices. We are from Louisiana, and we from Texas. Ohio is here, here's Virginia. Voice after voice took up the message until every state had been claimed by a voice. It sounded as though all the bells of Fairyland were ringing at once. For, do you know, every one of the hundreds and hundreds of big boxes which filled the hold of that ship was filled with the doll messengers of friendship on their way to Japan. End quote. I think it says something about the popularity of this doll project that it seems to have generated its own fan fiction. According to the documents at the Sapporo Clock Tower, over 2.6 million Americans, when all is said and done, took part in the funding and construction of these dolls, Teachers, children, and families all over the nation customized the dolls in all sorts of ways, including, apparently, and again I'm quoting from the Commission on World Friendship's book, Red Cross nurses, Quaker ladies, dolls wearing Girl Scout or campfire costumes, and even a few rather terrified boy dolls, unquote. Not really sure what to make of that. Begin quote again. A most entrancing bridal couple and best man came from Milwaukee. The males, impressively dressed in black satin dress suits with boutonnieres and very high collars, one doll from the south made a great sensation. She was nearly as large as a child and could repeat a half dozen nursery rhymes. She also said, "Now I lay me," ending with a strong emphasis on, "and make me a good girl." One can imagine at the Imperial Palace in Tokyo, where she visited, she had to tell her stories over and over. End quote. As Gulik had hoped, teachers at many schools did use the dolls as an opportunity to teach about Japan. As one example, a Kansas school teacher wrote, The Goodwill Project has met with a great deal of success in our Salina schools. The geography class changed from their regular course to the study of Japan. Interesting stories and pictures were brought and shared by the classes. Each grade building decided to buy and dress one of the friendship dolls. Every child in the building had some part in the purchase of it, as each child was allowed to contribute a few cents to help buy the doll and its clothes. As well as the railroad and steamship tickets necessary to complete the journey. End quote. Yes, this was an era before the imposition of state learning standards, when curriculum was largely up to the classroom teacher, who could change it up on the fly if a topic like this arose that really seemed to spark students' interests. Thank heaven we brought all that under control. In the end, the initiative that Gulick's World Committee began managed to garner no less than 12,729 dolls and sent them across the ocean to Japanese schools. They were called Aoi me no ningyo, or blue-eyed dolls. And again, we have this problematic promotion of whiteness as the sole image of America, which does seriously undercut the message of international friendship. It is more than a little ironic that a project whose aim was to create bonds of international understanding and empathy didn't take the step of doing that within the United States across racial lines. Anyway. The dolls were apparently given a formal welcome ceremony in Tokyo upon their arrival, before being distributed out to schools. While no parallel organization to the Committee on World Friendship Among Children existed at the time in Japan, the Doll Exchange Project found a friend in Japanese Viscount Shibasawa Aichi. For those who aren't familiar, Japanese names begin with the family name first, so Aichi is actually his given name. The son of farmers, Shibasawa spent his early life as part of a reactionary movement against Western influence in Japan. But eventually, he wound up touring Europe and developed a degree of appreciation for Western cultures, especially Western economic systems. Shibasawa rose through the political ranks to become Japan's Minister of Finance, where he essentially was placed in charge of the efforts to reform the Japanese economy to be more in line with Western models. Before long, though, he decided to move into the private sector and take advantage of some of those reforms himself to make a lot of money. Shibasawa became one of the founders and president of Daiichi Bank, and became something like the Warren Buffett of Japan. Over the course of his life, he founded or significantly supported around 500 major businesses across the nation, founded the Tokyo Stock Exchange and the Japanese Red Cross, and in particular, invested in education at all levels. It was in this role as educational benefactor that Shibisawa became aware of Gulick's doll exchange. Apparently, he and Gulick had known one another during the American missionaries' years in Japan, and now, Shibasawa convinced the best doll makers in his country to build and send 58 usual ningyo or friendship dolls, constructed in a similar style, but dressed in traditional Japanese clothing, bearing passports and cultural artifacts from Japan, including a trunk with an entire miniaturized tea ceremony set. Much of the funding for this initiative apparently also came from crowdsourcing, with Japanese schoolgirls nationwide each donating one sen, or about 50 cents doll represented a prefecture, or district in Japan, and was sent to schools, museums, and libraries across the United States. So that's how it came to be that in the days before a globe-spanning internet could let you learn about anyone anywhere in the world in an instant, American and Japanese educators found a way that children and nations on literally opposite sides of the planet, and on opposite sides of a growing political and ideological divide, could learn about the other's culture and way of life or at least a certain highly curated picture of that nation's way of life. As I said before, it wasn't as if Japanese students were now learning about the ethnic diversity in America, any more than American students were learning about the Barakamin or the Ainu, or any of the other marginalized peoples in the Japanese islands. But it was an education and a connection nonetheless, one which engendered positive feelings about people in the other country. How do I know this? Because it was that very tendency to engender positive feelings, that put the dolls in the crosshairs of the Japanese government once war broke out with the United States. In 1943, during the height of the Pacific War, the Japanese Ministry of Education issued an explicit order that the quote, enemy dolls from America must be destroyed. By all reports, hundreds of dolls were burned or stabbed or otherwise disposed of. Of the 12,000 Sama dolls that were sent to Japan as part of Gulick's project, only 334 were confirmed to have survived that period. But think about that. 334 survived. And that brings us all the way back to where this episode began, to that doll in the glass case beneath the clock tower in Sapporo. The following information comes from researcher and self-described doll doctor Aoki Masaru, as translated by Nordico Gordon. I am absolutely indebted to her and to her husband, Wesleyan University professor Bill Gordon, for donating their time and helping me track down the story of this particular doll. She reports that a children's book by an author named Takeda Aiko confirms that the doll's name is Fanny Pio and that she was sent from Montclair, New Jersey. She was among the original dolls that arrived in the 1927 World Friendship Commission's doll embassy, and as one of 643 dolls that ended up in Hokkaido, she was given to the Wakaba Kindergarten, a private school, and the oldest kindergarten in the city of Sapro under the principalship of one Tsukamoto Shoken, or possibly Tsukamoto Masakata. I have diversion sources on his name here. Tsukamoto was said to have personally gone to the government office to receive Fanny Pio with one of the kindergarten children when she arrived, then brought her back and gave each and every child at the school a chance to hold her, before placing her in a display case in the principal's office. Fanny Pio was apparently used as a teaching tool for learning English greetings, and participated in at least one hinamatsuri event, There is an official record in the Hokkaido Prefectural Office from the Wakaba School indicating that they complied with the government's order to destroy the Fanny Pio doll. But clearly that didn't happen. The next time the doll showed up, it was discovered by Tsukamoto's now-adult daughter, Tsukamoto Aki, in 1973 in a closet in her family home. Had her father, the principal, willfully defied the destruction order? If this is the case then he must really have believed in the mission of that doll exchange, to put himself and his family at such potential risk. The consequences had his defiance been discovered would have been severe, to say the least. Of course, it's entirely possible that he thought he complied, but someone else secretly smuggled the doll out, perhaps someone in his family, and hid it in the home. At this point, there's really no way to know. Both Tsukamoto and his daughter have passed away. All we know is that in 1978 or 1979, again, records vary, Tsukamoto Aki, who, by the way, had been principal of the school herself since 1961, donated the doll to the City Board of Education. From there, somehow, she ended up on display in the Sapporo Clock Tower. Fanny Pio is one of only 23 of the dolls discovered to have survived in Hokkaido. Sidney Gulick died in December 1945, so he had no opportunity to see the future of intense friendship and cooperation that eventually arose between the U.S. and Japan from the ashes of the war. His grandson, Denny, a math professor at the University of Maryland, revived a small-scale version of the doll Exchange in the 1980s. But by then, the significance, and therefore the magnitude, of the project was greatly diminished. The need for it, and the cultural zeitgeist, just wasn't there although I imagine the exchange still made some children very happy, which is nothing to be sneezed at. As both a diplomatic and educational tool, the dolls of Sidney Gulick's exchange program were of course flawed. While they engaged children and sparked curiosity about a foreign culture, they each presented their culture in a rather narrowly defined and stereotyped way. Gulick's intentions to strengthen the ties between ordinary Americans and ordinary Japanese during a time of rising xenophobia in both countries was admirable. Yet, despite his apparent knowledge of Japanese customs, he was unaware, or perhaps just unconcerned, with the discomfort that his project caused on the Japanese end. Reciprocation of gifts is extremely important to Japanese culture, and at the time, Japanese families just did not have the available wealth to reciprocate a gift of almost 13,000 dolls in equal measure. The 58 dolls that Japan did wind up sending to the US were of much higher quality than the American ones, so that, in some way, may have been an attempt to balance the scales. There was also the issue of the Japanese value of following proper protocol. Citizen diplomacy was just not a thing back then, and generating some sort of official response to a diplomatic outreach that had itself not come via official diplomatic channels from America was in and of itself a challenge for the Japanese educators who took part. Cornell University professor Hirokazu Miyazaki, who became aware of the Doll Exchange after his son discovered a children's book about it, writes that, quote, understanding and exchange are not the same thing. Despite the best of intentions, the exchange organized by Gulick and Shibasawa engendered misunderstanding, frictions, and unintended consequences, end quote. I recognize all of that. And yet, I also recognize the power of even small, imperfect gestures to humanize those we construct as the other. And so did the wartime imperial Japanese government. I mean, think about it. An empire that had conquered the better part of East Asia, with an army of over six million soldiers, was frightened enough of these little porcelain dolls to demand their destruction. And the belief in the possibilities of common ground and friendship that those dolls represented was strong enough not only to threaten that government, but to make at least some Japanese people risk their lives and that of their families to preserve them. I personally find that amazing and more than a little emotionally moving. And that's what I tell my students when we gather in front of that glass case at the clock tower. That our little annual trips of students back and forth actually matter, actually mean something, especially in an era where unfortunately xenophobia is once again on the rise, where borders are closing and countries, my own included, are showing stronger nativist tendencies and more withdrawal from the global scene. These dolls can be considered a reminder that we as ordinary citizens have the choice and the power to learn about the world outside our bubble To gain both a window, however imperfect, into the lives of those we consider different, and also a mirror in which we see our own common humanity reflected. Instead of our usual theme music, our ending credits today will be set to the tune of Blue-Eyed Doll by Noguchi Ujo, a famous early 20th century Japanese children's songwriter. Think of him as the Rafi of Imperial-era Japan. This song is specifically about the dolls from Gulick's project. became that popular that they got their own children's pop song, and we'll let that song carry us out. That's all the time we have for now. Class dismissed, and we'll see you next time. I hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you did, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you found us. Like us on our Facebook page. And if you really enjoy it, please consider visiting our website, www.com. Ed-infinitum.com and making a donation to keep it running. Otherwise, in the grand tradition of underfunded public schools, we'll be reliant on only what we can make from bake sales. The website is the place to go if you want to suggest a topic or send me an email for any other reason. Our theme music is Happy Schoolmaster by Mind Music ID. Thanks again for listening, and remember, every day brings us opportunities to learn something new.